Friends, please take your Bible and turn to Ephesians. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second prayer in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, found in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 to 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. This is what Holy Scripture says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please keep your Bible open there to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. And as you have your Bible open, maybe I would ask you this question. What is something, and kids, this is something you can think about too, what is something that makes you really, really happy? What's something that just brings you real joy and delight. I mean truly happy, like full of joy kind of happiness. What makes you happy? We have been thinking the last couple of weeks about what it means to delight in God to the glory of God for the good of all people. And we've been doing that by digging into the two prayers that Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians. And this will be the end of our little series in Ephesians where we've just been trying to jumpstart our obedience a little bit by saying, uh, let's, let's, let's act like what, the way we're supposed to. Let's just act like Christians are supposed to act. And that's to be from the heart. So we begin with identity, and then we move from identity to the specific things, things to put off, things to stop doing, and things to put on, things to start doing. But I'm circling back to these two prayers of Paul because they are so foundational in understanding what it means to be happy in God, what it means to delight in God himself. What was your prayer life like last week? I mentioned last Sunday that the prayers in our Bible are there to teach us how to pray, the content of what our prayers should include. But you can reverse engineer that as well by considering your own prayers of the previous week. What do your prayers from last week teach you about you? John Stott wrote this, we all pray about what concerns us and are evidently not concerned about matters we do not include in our prayers. 
The things that don't concern us, we don't pray about. Things that we are concerned about, we do pray about. As he says, prayer expresses desire. So, as you contemplate your prayers of the last week, were your desires for God, for God Himself? Was God the great concern of your heart that manifested itself in your prayers? We pray about the things that concern us. Paul prayed about what concerned him. And he's expressing some of his inmost desire here in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And we want to ask, what was on his mind? What did he want for, for Christians, for people like you and me? He's writing to people in the first century, but it's, it's true for all Christians even today. And what was important to Paul? Good health, good job, find a spouse, find a different spouse, <laughs> a change of government, end suffering. He could have prayed about all those things, but I want you to pay careful attention to what the apostle asks here from God, and it will show you two things. It'll, it'll show you what you should be praying for every other member of this church. That's a big one. And it will also show you what matters the most in this world. So before we look at the actual three requests that he makes, I want to locate the prayer in the letter for us and, and just sort of answer the question why it comes here. And that's, that's kind of important. So look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, for this reason, okay? Now, that, uh, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. With that little phrase, for this reason, uh, Paul is picking up where he left off back in chapter 3, verse 1. So if you flip back to chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then there's a dash. What's the dash for? Well, it's telling you that Paul was about to start the prayer that he started here in verse 14, but you do this too. You're, you're starting to say something to someone, and then you think, oh, I, I want to say this first, right? You sort of leave your sentence hanging there, you fill it in, and then you come back to your the start of your previous sentence. That's exactly what Paul is doing here, which means that Paul is about to pray. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, you look above it into chapter 2, what's he talking about in chapter 2? He's talking about how in the gospel there's not now a bunch of different people. We are all brought in, Jew and Gentile, and are made the one family of God. So you see in chapter 2, verse 18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So in, in his uh, uh, sort of breaking down of things here, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's Jewish people and Gentile people. <laughs> and uh, he's saying now that, that, that barrier is gone. All those on, who are in Christ are now part of the one people of God. You see it in verse 22 of chapter 2. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place place, not places, it's singular, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Paul's been, you know, talking about what God has done in the gospel, the early part of chapter 2, and now he, he contemplates what this means to be all the family of God, and he starts to pray, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, he thinks of something he wants to say, and then verse 14, he picks up his prayer again. That make sense? So the for this reason What's that referring to? For this reason, the for the reason that we are one family, I'm now going to pray. 
And his prayer is not a prayer of adoration. That's a kind of prayer in your Bible. This is a prayer of supplication, a prayer of request. And he approaches God the way all of us should approach God, in humble confidence. I say humble because he he says here, verse 14, I, for this reason, I bow my knees Now, the Bible does not say you have to bow your knees, bend your knees, get on your knees every time you pray. You most certainly can. It's not a bad habit at all. It's an excellent habit, something good to do. Many Christians take a knee when they come to asking things from their Creator, but it's not only humility that marks his prayer. You'll also see soaring confidence here. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. He's approaching the Father. Now, a prince understands his position before his father, the king. He's he's to show proper respect, but he also knows that he can plead his case in all earnestness because of his unique relationship with his dad, with his father. The father loves him. He's the son of the father. He has a, a different kind of access to the king than just a mere courtier. He's the son of the king. He's a prince of the kingdom. And this is how Paul comes before God, as a prince and as a son, humble confidence. That's how we ought to approach the Lord, too. Not so familiar that things become a little bit silly. Uh, if, just a newsflash, uh, sometimes I hear Christians you know, saying, well, Abba means daddy, and they'll pray to daddy God. And actually, that's not true. Abba is just another word for father. And I, I think sometimes you might feel a little bit kind of cringy when somebody's saying, you know, daddy God, would you do this? We're like, really, daddy God? And why do you feel a little bit like weird by that? Because it is a little bit strange. It's, it's not appropriate. It's a little bit irreverent to approach God in those kinds of terms. But neither should we pray so formally that we adopt the old English, thine great potentate of all, or, you know, only come groveling before him as the unworthy worms that we are. It's confidence as well. So humility and confidence go together. He's your king. He's your father. And the father language here is very, very deliberate by Paul. The father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. If you have the new King James, you'll see it's a little bit different. And frankly, I think a little bit better. It says the father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So instead of in every family, the whole family. That's a much better representation of the original language. And It fits the context so much better because Paul's not talking about individual families here. Nowhere in this context is he doing that. But he's been talking a whole lot about the one family of God, the whole family, singular. So with that phrase, Paul is saying, I am praying to the father of all the believers, the father of the church militant, the church here on earth, the father of the church victorious, the church there in heaven, the father of the whole family, the father by whom the whole family is named. If God is your father and God is my father, that means we have the same last name. We are one. And that's the whole flow of this letter. And so getting all of that settled, Paul is now ready to make his actual requests from the Lord. Three prayer requests 
and, and these are three things that we need to learn to be praying for each other all the time. So you're going to want to pay really careful attention. I've tried to explain them as clearly as I can so you can pray it with great earnestness for all your brothers and sisters here. The first thing is this. Pray that your fellow members will be spiritually fortified to experience a steadier presence of Christ. That's the first time you're reading that. Let me just go through it. Pray that your fellow members will be spiritually fortified to experience a steadier presence of Christ. Let me try and show you what I mean. What I'm saying here is that more Christ is going to yield more delight. Verse 16 Request one, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, who do we got here? We got the Apostle Paul marching like a son of the king into the heavenly court and he lays out his great request number one. It's as if Paul walks into the presence of God and says, look, Father, I I have poked around a little bit in your storehouses, in your barns, in your safes, and and in your armories. I, I know what you have. Well, at least I know some of what you have, and you have a lot. So I'm here on behalf of all my brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters, to ask you to tap into that endless wealth of yours and act. I want you to answer my prayer out of the riches of your glory and to grant or to give my brothers and sisters something. What is this something? For them to be spiritually strengthened that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in your inner being, in your internal spirit, if you will. So to be strengthened is just the idea of being made strong, being made mighty, to become powerful. Paul's saying something like this, I'm praying that they would become powerful with power. Luke used the word when he described our Lord Jesus as he grew up. He said in Luke 2 verse 40, the child grew and became strong. Same word. Filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And and Paul is praying for something similar here for all the Christians, that they would grow up in the Lord. But this, this growing up, this strengthening is not physical, is it? What does he say? This is to take place in the inner person, the inner being. That means your soul, the spirit, the mind, your your strength, the insides of you as compared to the outside of you in which you you live. The the body in which you live is subject to death and decay, but the inner person is eternal. And Paul is praying that we Christians would be finding our inner person beefed up in and by God. Forget about gold's gym. You need God's gym. I know it was a cheap joke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we go to the Holy Spirit, Jim, so why? That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why do you need this strengthening by the Holy Spirit in your inner being? Here's the thing. You need to be strengthened in your inner being so you can endure Jesus. 
Imagine you're completing some significant renovations to your house and you invite some of your relatives to come and live with you while they help you in the completion of those renovations. But after a few months, the work is done and everything's fine and they're, they're, they're still there and they're making no indication that they're going to leave and you're kind of wondering how long they're going to stay. You don't really need them anymore, so you begin to hint kind of passive-aggressively that maybe it's time for them to go home. You turn the heat down a little bit so it gets kind of uncomfortable. You stop doing their laundry. You don't offer to make their meals. And eventually, they clue into the fact that you don't want them there anymore because you don't need them anymore. And so they leave. A lot of Christians are like this with God. They invite him into their spare room when they need him. But when the renovations are done, they suggest that it's time for him to move on. How unlike what Paul is praying for here. Paul is praying that you would be spiritually strengthened. Think of this, Christian. So what you're going to be praying for all the other members here, you're going to pray that they would be spiritually strengthened to let God move in permanently. Look at verse 16 again, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul had two words at his disposal for this idea of dwelling. One of them was the word you would use for a a short-term guest, somebody who was staying over a couple of nights on their way to somewhere else. The other word that Paul had at his disposal was the one that he used here, which spoke about somebody moving in permanently. That's what he's praying for here. So his request is this, Lord, by your Holy Spirit... Fortify these Christians on the insides so that they can handle Jesus moving in. Friends, here is a wonderful, wonderful picture of what it means to delight in God. God dwells in you. God takes up residence in your heart. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, wait a second. Doesn't he do that the moment we are saved? To which I would answer, absolutely, yes. But what Paul is talking about here is a little bit different. Paul is talking about your personal, real, ongoing fellowship with God. And an act of faith is going to result in you having room in your heart for Jesus. In this sense, you know that it's almost Christmas, uh, thou didst leave thy throne in thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me, but in Bethlehem's home there was found no room for thy holy nativity. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. I wonder if you could sing that this Christmas. Is there room in your heart? For Jesus? Or is it crowded out with all the cares and worries and tokens and trifles of this life and this world? Is that what you want? Do you want God to dwell in you? Or do you want something new for Christmas? 
It's a spiritual war, right? Ephesians chapter 6, remember that? Which means here's where the enemy's going to attack. He's going to try and keep this from happening, which is why I'm going to pause and pray right now. Pray with me. Oh, God, we are foolish, foolish creatures. You offer to come and dwell with us, and we would rather fill our hearts with entertainment or folly or selfish lusts. We can go a long time without even thinking about you. So that when you arrive to take up residence in these hearts of ours, we're too weak to let you in. We tremble in fear behind the curtains rather than rush forward in faith to answer the door when you knock, Lord Jesus. Oh God, fortify these hearts of ours to receive you by faith. Come into our hearts, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Then comes a second request from Paul. That's just number one. Here's number two. Pray that your fellow members will master the scope of Christ's love for them in order to increase their delight in him. Pray that your fellow members will master the scope of Christ's love for them in order to increase their delight in him. So this begins near the end of verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So the request of this very long sentence is that we would understand, really it's the idea that we would master the expanse of Christ's love for us. That's the heart of it. Paul's saying, Lord, I pray that you would help them to know the unknowable. That's what he means when he says to know the love of Christ that surpasses, it's, it's beyond knowledge. I want you to know what is unknowable. But a couple of things come before he makes that specific request. First, Paul notes our condition. He says that the Ephesian Christians, just like us, are established in love. And he uses an agricultural and then an architectural illustration. So the agricultural one is this. He says, you are rooted in love. So Paul says, these Christians, they, they're, they're like a well-rooted tree. I've got a big oak tree in my backyard, and the winds blow. It just stays there because it's big and it's oak, and I think it's well-rooted. I hope it is. <laughs> and Paul says, you're stable like that in your love. Then he uses an architectural illustration. He says you're grounded in love. Uh, You engineers and architects, this is the idea of a foundation. You know that a a good foundation, the building is going to stand. And so you're, you're like a building with an excellent foundation. You're stable in your love. You're rooted in love. You're grounded in love. I'm not sure if Paul means by this that they are stable because they are loved by God or that they're stable in their love for one another. Maybe he leaves it a little bit vague because you would think both would be true. I'm not sure. The point is there is a stability to their faith that is connected somehow to love. That's what I can give you about that. And they are currently in a state of having been grounded and rooted in love. 
And Paul is praying that these ones who are rooted and grounded in love, who are already stable in love, might be strengthened. So it's not good enough to be rooted and grounded in love. Now I want you to be strengthened again. And so here's this strengthening work of the Spirit. I want you to be strengthened to know, to acquire, to master the scope of the love of Christ. And by scope, I mean what he says here, breadth and length and height and depth. Right? So look at that whole request again, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Some of the early fathers in the church, when they read this verse, uh, they all, uh, uh, not all, a lot of them alluded immediately to the cross the instrument of our Lord's death. And they said that cross is a picture of this love. It was driven down deep into the ground to reach the worst of sinners. It pointed up to the heavens where Christ would sit exalted with all his people. It pointed to the left and to the right, wide enough to accept all who would come and broad enough to last forever. It seems to me to be no mistake that our Savior hung with arms wide open as he died in the place of sinners. Those wide open arms are an invitation to you, my friend, if you're not yet a Christian. You are lost and dead in your sins. You must repent and believe on Christ. He's the only Savior the world is ever going to get. He's the only Savior God will ever provide. And this God tells you that he will receive you. Jesus looks at you from his cross, as it were, with the bleeding wounds, and and from eye to eye, he's looking at you now and calling you and saying to you, this is how much I love you. I'm willing to give myself for you. Now deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus looks at you with eyes full of love. The love of God reaches to the stars, Psalm 36, 5. The love of God fills up the earth, Psalm 33, 5. The love of God lasts forever and ever, Psalm 52, 8. The love of God, God is abounding in that love, Psalm 86, 5. It runs before him, Psalm 89, 14. It it never runs out, Psalm 100, verse 5. And that's just some Old Testament psalms. Men and women understood the depth of God's love long before the cross, but what clarity they gained at Calvary, after which they could say with total confidence, while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, God showed his love for us in that Christ died for us. The God of love has been making himself known since Eden, if we had eyes to see it. But that's the point, isn't it? We need eyes to see it. We need to have our spiritual cataracts removed so we can behold how deep and wide and high and low flows the love of Christ for us. And the us is very, very important. Comprehending the love of Christ is never a mere personal project. It is something that is to be done in community. It is a corporate project. Look at verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. 
Exploring the love of God in Christ can only be done in community because no one person, no one person could ever come close to grasping the extent of his love. I need to hear what you have learned about the breadth of his love. I need to hear what she has learned about the depth of his love. I need to hear what they have learned about the width of his love. And you need to hear what I have learned about the height of his love. Only then will we begin to plumb the oceans and reach the stars of his never-ending perfect love for us in Christ. This week in your member group, why don't you just start by saying, let's all talk about the love of God in Christ. Let's share what we have learned about the love of God. Let's identify to one another how that love met us, what it means to us, how we have seen that love in our lives. And then let's rejoice and delight in our great loving God together. This is what he prays for. And this leads to his third request, one that certainly requires God to answer request number one and request number two before request number three could ever happen. But before we get to request number three, let's pause again and pray for our church to be strengthened, to know the love of God. Oh Lord, oh Lord, may the fact that we are established in your love, may the fact that we have covenanted together in love give us enough strength to comprehend, to master even, the love of Christ for us. We want to know, Jesus, what you have done for us, who you are for us, and we need your help, Spirit. So come now and help us as a church to talk more about Christ's love than almost anything else. We mean this, and so we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now that third request Paul makes. Pray that the lives of your fellow members, are you ready for this? Will be saturated by the presence of God as they delight in God. Pray that the lives of your fellow members would be saturated by the presence of God as they delight in God. We're walking into a little bit of holy ground here. It's in this phrase that you may be filled, the end of verse 19, with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying that the Ephesian Christians, and by extension you and me, all of us, would find ourselves filled up to the total fullness of God. What does that mean? First, a little note, the word with. That can be a little bit of a distraction to our English ears. Uh, it's, it's a fine translation, but what Paul's intending here is that we would, something maybe closer to unto so unto the fullness of God, that you may be filled unto all the fullness of God. And, and that sort of directional preposition there is important because Paul prays that we would be filled up to the level of God with God. 
filled to capacity with all of God. Have you been to Lake Ontario? Stood at the edge of the lake? It's a big lake. It is a great lake. (laughs) If a man stands at the edge of Lake Ontario with a bucket, he can dip his bucket into the lake and fill his bucket to the brim. His bucket is full. But it does not contain the fullness of Lake Ontario. There's still lots of water left. Paul is not praying here that you would get your little bucket full. He's praying something more along the lines of leaving your bucket at home and all the water of that great lake filling you up. Kids, let me ask you, do you think I could go to Lake Ontario and kind of lay down on the beach there and start slurping up the lake for days and days and days and get all of Lake Ontario inside of me? Yeah, I don't think I could either. But that's essentially what Paul is praying here, to be filled with the fullness of God. Now, is that just exaggeration, hyperbole? What's he doing here? I'm not, I don't think it is. <laughs> but, but how can all the fullness of God fill up one person? I, I'm not entirely sure, but I know the Spirit of God indwells a human, and The whole Spirit of God does, not a part of God's Holy Spirit or a bit of it. It's not like he sections himself off a little bit for you, a little bit for me, but all of him. And if we reflect on what Paul was praying earlier about Christ taking up residence in our hearts, moving in and staying in, perhaps that's close to what Paul's getting at here. And I think a man may know moments in his life when when, when he's so taken up with God that it's as if God is, is right there in the room with him. Times of fellowship and love with the Father where, you're, where your chest, your heart is kind of beating out of your chest with joy at the one who you are fellowshipping with. Even if all that man gets are tastes of God like that along the way, he knows that a day is approaching when he will say, along with his Savior Jesus, you have made me full of gladness with your presence. This fullness stuff, it's very similar to the vocabulary that capped off the last prayer we looked at last week, back in chapter 1. Look at verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul ends his prayer there by saying, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the one who fills all in all finds his fullness in his people, in the church. You know, it might be that our spiritual, the greatest spiritual problem we have is that our expectations are way too low. All this fullness language is is begging for fulfillment in this church. 
Perhaps we would be closer to it if, in the words of Ephesians 5.18, we did not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but were filled with the Spirit. If we relationally, personally engaged with Jesus for real, for in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Brother, sister, are you walking to the lake with the leaky bucket of your low expectations, or are you running to the shoreline, diving in and drinking and drinking and drinking? Are you filled with the fullness of God? Are you willing to risk being that happy? William Barclay said, heaven is heaven because in it, at last, all self and self-importance are lost in the presence of the greatness and the glory of God. So we might say that what Paul is praying for here is that heaven would come down to earth, that Mr. Self would vanish and be replaced with Mr. Delight in God. We, we live, brothers and sisters, in a comfortable world. And I know pandemics are hard, but it's still really comfortable. You got food, you're not in war. It's comfortable. If it was David who wrote it in Psalm 42, he said, as, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist did not write that when he was feeling spiritually dry, like, like he'd gone a few weeks without reading his Bible or praying. No, not at all. Look at it. When can I come and appear before God? He's... He's blocked from getting to the place where a believer in his age is supposed to go and worship. He can't get there. If it's David, it's because of Saul. He can't get there, can't go to the altar, can't make sacrifices, can't get there. This is a man who is, is finding that circumstances are preventing him from getting to the one place where he can worship his God. And he's saying, everything in me longs for my God. But he's blocked. He can't get to God. And I think this is one of the greatest mysteries of all. If, if you remember back to Pastor Tim's sermon on hungering and thirsting after righteousness, he made the point that longing after God results in more longing after God. This is why it's a risk. Are you willing to stop trying to find your happiness in whatever the sinful thing is, whatever the idol is which, which satisfies you? Are you willing to turn your back on it and to just look at God and say, all right, I'm going to find my joy in you? Death to self. Topple the idol. And we long for God, and we find that we're not just satiated and go back to our merry ways. We find that as we long for him, we long for him even more. Are you willing for your hunger to increase? Oh, brothers and sisters, pray with me. Our God, make us thirsty for you. Make us hungry for you. Make us long for you.
Strengthen us on the inside to receive you. Take away all the obstacles from getting to you. We open our hearts to you, Lord Jesus. Come and fill us with all the fullness of God. We are willing to risk it all to have you. We are willing to risk tasting real joy, even if it's just for one day, because a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. As we hold bread and wine, draw us near to you, O God, right now, for real. Help us to delight in you, to your glory, and for the good of all people. Amen.